Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars sit down and dig into a scriptural text relevant to the season. We hope that it will be edifying for all and enjoyable for many as well, as well as equipping for those who might be uh, preparing uh, teachings or sermons or what have you. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. And my guest this week is Josh McNall. Josh is a relatively new friend of mine, although we acquainted ourselves with each other a few years back, um, but lately have been getting to know each other. And I appreciate Josh a ton, and he's a very clever guy, and I ha- has a lot of great insights. He is assistant professor of pastoral theology for the School of Ministry and Christian Thought at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. So he's a fellow Wesleyan who's doing theology, but at another university, uh, sister university there out West. So I'm really excited to get to have him on the show and get to expose him to some of our listeners. And so I hope that you'll enjoy him as much as I do. So if you want to learn more about Josh, you might want to check out his blog. It's just Joshua McNall by name, and he's got tons of great stuff on there and posts a lot. He's a great writer, very wonderful writer, very clear and engaging. He has a recent uh, book that just came out called The Mosaic of Atonement. The Mosaic of Atonement. It's a great book on atonement that tries to bring together different ways of talking about atonement in a way that um, are is mutually enriching. He has a number of other books. He's definitely a very uh, uh, prolific uh, scholar that I hope that you'll enjoy uh, the stuff that he has out there. So, But I wanted to pitch that, his most recent book in particular. So uh, with that said, our text this week is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Luke 20. 27 through 40. And be sure to uh, subscribe and share the, sh- the show and rate and review as well uh, to get the word out for what we're doing here. And then we'll say, enjoy the show. Awesome. Well, let's jump right in. So we're looking at Luke uh, chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40 here with Josh McNall. Uh, Josh, do you want to maybe read for us and then I'll say a word of prayer and then we'll jump in? Does that sound good? That'd be great. Let me get my Bible positioned here. So I have it in the NIV, but I'll I'll read through it and then we can go from there. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die. For they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. 
But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this word, this word that has been written and handed on to us, uh, attributed to St. Luke and read and proclaimed throughout the centuries. And we give you thanks for these words that Jesus exchanged with these Sadducees while in Jerusalem near the time of his death. And we give you thanks most of all for the word that was made flesh, Jesus himself, who is your very word, the word through whom you spoke into existence all things, and the word whose flesh restores and recreates and consummates your eternal creaturely intention for us. So, Lord, with a spirit of gratitude, we now come before you petitioning you to guide us in our words. Father, I ask that your spirit that was at work in Christ and in the author of this text, that that very spirit would be at work in Josh and myself and of all of our listeners across time and space, that the word of God would come uh, awakened into us, that we might see and hear and speak the word of God living and active among us. Lord, this is a big ask, and so we bring it to you in prayer, not presuming and yet also not fearing, trusting that we may be bold to humbly bring our hope for you to work among us, even in this very hour. So we ask that now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Well, thanks uh, for reading, Josh. Just uh, the kind of pattern usually on the podcast is to just begin with some observations. We'll take a break and come back and maybe do some more interpreting and dig in to chase down any trails that come to mind. And then in the third section, we'll do some sermon starters to see where it goes from there. So, uh, yeah, so first of all, what are some observations that just immediately grab you, maybe old favorite observations or new ones that are coming to mind on a fresh reading today? What what jumps out at you today? Well, I mean, you know, it's a hypothetical scenario set up <laughs> uh, by the by the Sadducees. It's, you know, one, the, maybe the first observation is it's sort of the definition of a, a gotcha question. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a type of questioning that's like sacred and holy and good. And then there's a type of questioning that's just intended to, to get somebody, you know, to, to back them into a corner and then so that you can, you know, uh, make them look stupid or you can out them as a heretic or you can, you know. <laughs> um, so maybe that, that was my first observation is it, it's a gotcha question. Um, and we certainly still have those today. You know. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and he, 
it's not the only, it's one of many gotchas that he experiences in Jerusalem in particular, yeah. right? Which fits, you know, it's kind of the end, especially in Luke, where it's kind of the end of this journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the kind of the big deal new teacher, but a lot of these, you know, this is his first encounter with a lot of these questioners. So they're kind of like, oh, I'll try our gotchas. And yeah. that's why I'm glad we included those last two verses because it's perhaps people are used to the gotchas questions when these Maybe every Passover, there was some new fancy rabbi that everyone was excited about. And then they looked like an idiot when they went up against the best in the land. Yeah. You know, but not Jesus. He just totally dispatches no problem, at least as kind of the picture that's being, yeah. being for us. Um, you know, there's a number, like, I think they have the, it even explicitly says there's that one with, that's, that's not too much before this about John the Baptist. Yeah. Uh, J- J- Jesus does a kind of gotcha back at him when they ask him a question. And there's the, the coin to Caesar. And yeah. there's the great commandment question, which in Luke yeah. appears earlier, but in Matthew and Mark is during Jerusalem. So there's a number of these like hot topic yeah. gotchas. So I, I think you're really onto something. They, little do they know that he's been facing gotchas for two, three yeah. years and he's been killing it. He knows how to deal with this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good insight and the good, good, good distinction between kind of the good kind of holy questioning that's motivated by mystery and the kind that's motivated by winning mm-hmm. capturing yeah yeah so i often say that in class you know with students i for a while i said there's no such thing as a bad question and then uh-huh. i kind of i kind of changed that and said except for the kind of questions that are just meant to show how smart you are to show how stupid somebody else is you know basically a kind of gotcha question you know um, well here's a question with that both generally, but also exegetically. I'll ask it generally first. Um, like I completely endorse that distinction and, and have said similar things, I suppose, to students. Although I struggle because is it part of the structure of a question? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or because of the way you described it was what it was meant to do. Is it the intent that's mm-hmm. the issue? Mm-hmm. Or are there certain kind of questions that are just structured that way? I guess at the end of the day, mm-hmm. the intent is in the context, but and, and I guess I shouldn't ask you in general, like thinking of this text right in front of us, it doesn't say that they were trying to catch him. There mm-hmm. are some that are introduced that way. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible to read this as a genuine question of interest? Yeah. I, I think it's hard to, but I mean, it's at least worth giving it a try, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's an interesting question. I've never really thought about it, to be honest. I always just assumed, you know, assumed kind of a malintent on the part of the Sadducees because of their party affiliation and the party line on resurrection. Right. This this is something they've kind of cooked up um, to, for the purpose of um, there's sort of like two options, I think in their mind that Jesus can choose. Um, He can either agree with them and say, well, you know, there's no resurrection. So it's a moot point. Or the other option in their mind is you end up with this sort of Jerry Springer-like scenario where, <laughs> right. <laughs> where you're in the afterlife and you've got some sort of weird plural marriage thing going on or you've got to like pick which one you want to be with. But either way, it's a kind of a, it makes a farce out of the idea of marriage. And so I think, you know, they think he's got to choose a or B, you know, and, and any ops for, you know, none of the above on, on that. 
Yeah, it's suddenly occurring to me that verse 27, when the author, the, the narrator reminds us that Sadducees are those who say there is no resurrection, mm-hmm. this is performing perhaps two functions. It's performing the first layer function is just, hey, for those of you who don't know about Sadducees, here's, our, here's who they are. And there's a lot of that um, in Mark, and you find the similar things popping up in, in Luke and Matthew, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of little, you know, narrator asides to catch people up. And I've always just taken it that way. Like as someone who has known about Sadducees for, you know, and their doctrines for a couple decades, I hear that line and immediately just think of that. Oh, that's for dummies who don't know that, which is my own pride. Right. And so then now I'm hearing the second layer that perhaps you're helping me see, which is the reminding of the audience is relevant for the interpretation of the question to come. It's like, this is a question, you know, Not just reminding you of their views, but saying this whole thing is directed towards a gotcha, as you call it, the gotcha question. And the fact, the second giveaway, and and, and this maybe goes into your your insight that when you said, you know, there's no good, there's no bad questions. And now you've come to say, well, except (laughs) if it's intended to uh, just trick or makes people look stupid or you look smart. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tend to worry about the fallacy of, the ghost in the machine of trying to figure out the intentionality. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder if there are certain kinds of questions at, in terms of their structure that lend themselves more to a kind of gotcha spirit. Mm-hmm. Is this making sense? Yeah. And this is what would be called a reductio ad absurdum mm-hmm. argument, yeah. right? They're saying, if you believe in, cause he, of course he, the third option, I guess, is for him to say, Moses doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but to, to, they're basically mocking, not explicitly, but subtly mm-hmm. through dialectic mocking the doctrine of resurrection, saying the doctrine of res- resurrection results in yeah. absurd, mm-hmm. you know, ideas. Right. Um, and who you don't want to do that, do you? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying all reductio ad absurdums. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. a reductio argument can be helpful in eliminating yep. a bad idea. But when maybe you could say a reductio directed at oneself or amongst friends is very different than a reductio mm-hmm. directed at uh, a competitor, right? It's yeah. probably going to be some kind of, yeah. uh, it's going to be a kind of competitive thing. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, you know, it's the multiplication of the dead spouses <laughs> is because uh... <laughs> my oh, question right. was, it's like, what is this woman doing to her husband's? Like, I thought we had like a black widow situation. <laughs> Uh, you know, or like she's the common denominator, you know, there's, she's poisoning their, you know, their food or something. Wow. You know, my mind never went there because <laughs> it was a hypothetical. I wasn't taking it seriously as an incident, although that, it, that would have been a, a nice uh, way to get out of it. The question. Okay. Yeah, the answer well, is she's a murderer. And so it's irrelevant. <laughs> she'll be in hell. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> So that would be an example of evading the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, although you're right, the seven, you're right, because lo- the logical problem is already achieved with two. Right. Yeah. If it was just like Onan, the, the story of, of uh, Judah's sons, right? Right. Um, where you have this practice, right? Where the brother uh, marries Tamar, right? Isn't that the Tamar story? Yeah, where or he Tamar, refuses right? to he refuses to kind of fulfill the leveret marriage. Yeah. 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 So then the, the logical problem of resurrection is 
is already achieved at two. Right. So you're right. The seven has a kind of farcical character to it as you, I think that's what you said was farcical. I think yeah, that's it seems to kind of be a, maybe a second pointer in addition to your little narrative thing about the resurrection and the Sadducees, it seems to be kind of a second pointer to maybe some motives that are a little bit uh, less than stellar, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So in a way we have three things we have the, in terms of clues of your insight that this is, this is intended at a, as a gotcha, which should be obvious, but I always like questioning our assumptions, you know, yeah. uh, that the reminder of the Sadducees position on resurrection. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that they have an agenda. So they right. have an agenda. A it's not an open-ended inquiry. They already have right. a, agenda. they have a position. Second is a reductio ad absurdum style of an argument has a tendency to be more of a gotcha when directed at a competitor. And the third is your, this farcical character, just so many (laughs) wife after wife. Oh man, that's good. Well, we've gotten through the first half. Let's take a quick break and come back and do a little bit more and see where it takes us. Sound good. Sounds great. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Josh McNall, and we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Um, Yeah, that was fun talking about Sadducees and kind of getting a sense of their question. Do you want to spend a little time on Jesus's reply now? Because we really hadn't gotten into that. Maybe that's what we can focus on now for a little bit. Anything that jumps out there to you that, that interests you? Well, one of the things that jumped out is, you know, for those of us who are in um, good marriages, this passage has often been like, a, oh, wait a minute, like Jesus is saying that, you know, that marriage is just for this life, you know, and well, what if I would like it to, you know, this relationship I have with my spouse um, to carry on in some special and unique way beyond the resurrection. So, the first observation I had with regard to Jesus's response is just all of the conversations that this text has raised over the years with married couples, you know, myself included, you know, what, what this passage means for marriage in the resurrection, you know, and the questions it raises. And so it's, it's something that I've dug into before and trying to figure out what is Jesus saying about the nature of the resurrected existence and the Mm. nature of um, married relationships in the age to come, you know? So yeah, it's just raised all sorts of conversations along those lines for me. Till death do us part. Question mark. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But it's in the vow, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and remarriage uh, after death has been the norm for centuries and probably more common when the percentage of young death was higher. Yes. Yeah. Um, in an earlier age and the, the economic and political and the mainly economic and social necessity of remarriage for uh, women who wouldn't have any legal status, right. you know, <laughs> without yeah. Uh, remarriage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I was reading a Jonathan Edwards biography and um, when Edwards died of a uh, corrupted smallpox serum, Right, right. Uh, of course, and uh, I guess in your old stomping grounds, right? That's right. Yeah. 
uh, and his, you know, supposedly his last word lasted were, six months, uh, six weeks, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> he was president short, for nine months, but he'd only been in town for about six weeks when he died. It's kind of a short oh. stint. And supposedly he said, you know, his last words were, were for his wife. And he, he has this line where he, he says he trusts that their uncommon union was of such a spiritual nature that it would quote, continue forever. Edwards. Yeah. Um, no Which, pressure. Was he saying she can't get remarried? <laughs> <laughs> I, can't. I never thought of that. It's sort of like, a, oh, that kind of puts a, a different kind of spin on it. I, mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't think of that. There, there's more than enough evidence that she was on the same page with him in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, but of such a spiritual nature that the nature of our union is not reducible to our partnership as those who generate children. Yes. which is the thing that there you won't need to do anymore after right. the resurrection. But yet we're still, we're, in other words, we are a, a soul friendship, a spiritual friendship as it were. And so we have a bond that we can then continue to enjoy right. in the eschaton. Yeah. Yeah. Such that in fact you could have that bond and it wouldn't be uh, determined by marriage. See, I think, I think it's kind of like this goal that I think I just camping out on the marriage thing. It's, it seems to me that, one way to riff on that is to think of just like as a parent success as a parent is working yourself out of a job as it were, you know what I mean? That, that the, mm-hmm. that the child would come to no longer have to depend on you mm-hmm. and to be a parent in their own right, an adult. And, but you could then continue to be friends right. as adults. Um, one wonders now you could take this in creepy directions that I don't want to do, but one wonders if there's a kind of similar telos mm-hmm. in marriage that there would be a union such that you are friends Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that transcends even the very practical necessity of generating another generation, you know? Right. And I don't know, that's just a random thought that popped in my head that, that, uh, that in point of fact, you know, and the same goes for those whose, you know, marriages have not, you know, companionate marriage is not the norm and required of all people. I mean, it's okay right. to have an okay marriage, yeah. uh, you know, all, you know, and the fact is, is your best friend in the world might not be your spouse and that's okay. And yeah. that wouldn't that friendship have some continuity in the eschaton? Sure. Yeah. So if that, if that deepest friendship occurs within the bonds of marriage, surely it's a bond that can transcend marriage and not require mm-hmm. it. So I know I might be pushing against this notion of, yeah, I'm just, I am worried about a uh, sort of Latter-day Saints, Mormon kind of family values ideology that kind yeah. of turns yeah. my marriage and family identity is my first and foremost identity. And Jesus has, is not right. a fan of that kind of not thinking. okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> so one theory I had is, you know, there's a, there's a couple, I think, bad ways you can interpret Christ when he says, you know, they'll be like the angels in heaven. Uh-huh. You could interpret that as he's talking about a sort of just like non-bodily, you know, kind of ghosts floating in the clouds existence, mm-hmm. you know, which the, the very idea of the resurrection works against that. Yep, you know, yep. the, the resurrected existence is a bodily, uh, physical existence, you know. Um, so one of the, one of the thoughts I had is in some ways in our current fallen state, there are, it's, I'm wondering if, if the marital relationship in the, in the resurrection, it's, it's not that you don't maintain this sort of close 
intimate relationship with the person in the resurrection. It's just that all of your other relationships with friends, even with enemies, the level is raised on that ah. and the married, you know, the level is raised for all relationships Yeah, yeah, yeah. with your former spouse with your former spouse, but also with your former friends and your former enemies and your to where there's no longer this sort of possessive approach to relationships. Cause I've always taken this text and the question by the Sadducees to show forth a kind of like, they're treating this woman as if she's like yep. a piece of property, you know, yep. Yep. who gets her, who gets, That's right. That's who right. gets the property, you know, in the resurrection, they're not treating her like an equal or like a person you know, she's being, it's sort of like, well, who, who gets the woman, you know? That's as, right. And, and you're um, right that Jesus' response doesn't sort of directly address that sort of sexist politics, mm-hmm. but it does, the doctrine of resurrection does so indirectly. His yeah. response indirectly implies, because it says that all those who attain to the resurrection, worthy to attain the resurrection, and then implicitly male or female, all those who attain to resurrection are equal to the angels. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the kind of equality that then disrupts the whole logic of mm-hmm. um, at least some approaches to thinking about marriage. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've seen Jesus before comment about how Moses' own teachings on marriage, specifically yeah. marriage on, divor- mar- on divorce, yeah. was an act of accommodation to the weakness. Yeah. And though he doesn't go there with this one, you could easily see if the conversation went on, Jesus could make a move like that to say yeah. Leverite marriage is accommodation to the fact that yeah. men use women to generate children. Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, the point of this is to, bring, is to create a, a son to inherit the stuff, right? So the right. possessiveness, the, the economics are really over-determining this law. Right. And though, again, Jesus doesn't go there. He does implicitly by talking about equality and worthiness of attainment to resurrection. Mm-hmm. It, you're dead right to say resurrection is not this just kind of disembodied escape from bodily life, mm-hmm. but the kind of bodily life that resurrection is reorders and restructures the mm-hmm. sorts of social relations that we're used to mm-hmm. and calls into question a lot of assumptions. So mm-hmm. it's like he, he addresses some of these sociopolitical matters without uh, addressing them head on. Right. Uh, yeah. Which is often wise. There, there's actually a little bit of a hum, there's some homiletical wisdom hidden in that, right? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes. For sure. Yeah. There, there's another thing that maybe you had a longer, you had a list of more bad readings. You, you said you had there mm-hmm. were a couple. Want to make sure to not read uh, like the angels. I don't remember if I had any more. One was obviously to kind of reject the physicality mm-hmm. of of resurrection. Another one would be to miss the kind of sexist and possession driven approach behind the, the question. And then maybe a third one is to, to miss the, the critique, the explicit critique that Jesus makes of of just like this whole death problem. Yeah. Kind of goes after that. um, That look, we're not going to be rest. We're not going to deal with that problem anymore. You know, the, and and so because they won't die you know he talks about that yeah that's striking that's seems to be he doesn't explain it but it seems to be they cannot die anymore it seems to be crucial to his argument Mm -hmm. and i think it implies though he doesn't lay it out you tell me push back if so it seems to imply akin to that accommodation argument i made earlier about divorce that marriage 
the primary, not exclusive, but primary function of which is procreation and uh, generation inheritance. Well, generation inheritance, procreation and inheritance, we'll say. I'll say that as a twin. Procreation and inheritance are themselves a response to the problem of death. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. don't have to generate your immortality in the, in the eschaton. Mm-hmm. A, res- the resurre- a resurrected body doesn't need a son or daughter right. to live on through a legacy. Yeah. Your existence is your legacy in a way that's just not true until then. Because yeah. 10 out of 10 people die, right? <laughs> Death is a universal experience. And that's why, you know, pair bonding is a universal human experience. But they're somewhat intertwined, I mean, is part of what he's saying, mm-hmm. um, in a way that's sort of obvious, and yet we forget a lot, you know? <laughs> uh, well, the, the death you know? problem is the big, I mean, the, the problem of the fall and death is the problem that occasions the kind of imperfect solution of lever at marriage. Yeah. And so in yeah. some ways, it's like their question, it would be like if you switch it to a modern sort of idiom would be like, but master, like who will be our healthcare provider in the resurrection? Oh yeah. yeah very so, good. Okay. Cause yeah. we won't have employers and who will, like what, what, what hospital yeah. will I go to? And it's like, well, you don't get it. Like you're asking about a problem. State supply. Yeah. But, oh, that's so good. That's a really good analogy because it captures the nonsensicalness really of the question because he doesn't answer. He doesn't say, oh, it's the first husband, mm-hmm. right? And it's not impossible. Of course, this was probably a standard gotcha question. The Sadducees would put to Pharisees all the time, mm-hmm. right? And as far as they knew, Jesus was just another Pharisee because he's from Galilee where the Pharisees were popular. Yeah. He was known as a resurrection believer. You know, he's very close to the Pharisees compared to Sadducees. Um, he was a critic of the temple system, just mm-hmm. like the Pharisees. He has so much in common with them. Um, Quotes from parts of the scriptures that go beyond the Torah. Right, know. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has these kind of pharisaical features. And it's not implausible to think that that would be a standard Pharisee answer. Well, mm-hmm. the first, because the whole point of Leverite marriage is that you would, you're not now a kind of companion with, you're actually, your job is merely to produce a son for your brother. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, she, cause I, know, I mean, that is a sort of very plausible pharisaical answer, but notice how just like the Pharisee, just like the Sadducees, the Pharisees are taking the gotcha question at face value. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I, I would have to do more research to know, but it's a, it's a plausible answer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't take that question, which goes with your second point about how he's not ignoring the, uh, power dynamics at work here yeah. and but really supports your third point which is dude the big problem is res- the big problem is death mm-hmm. when death is resolved a whole bunch of other problems get resolved with yeah. it yeah. when they don't get resolved they get dissolved right they be yeah. the, they're no longer problems that need answered right right yeah oh that's so helpful that the healthcare analogy really helped me that that really clicked i think where that'll make its way into a sermon uh <laughs> It almost captures the whole thing. I had one little observation to just throw out at you to play with that last point about they cannot die anymore. So I've got my synopsis here Mm -hmm. um, and was looking at some of the subtle 
change addition, subtractions, and changes that Luke's making compared yeah. to Mark and Matthew's version. Mm-hmm. And they all really stick out like a sore thumb to me. So there's some grammatical ones in the Sadducees that are uninteresting. The one I wanted to focus on, there's a handful in his answer, and maybe you already saw these, but in 34 it says it starts with the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Hmm. But those who are counted worthy to attain to that age up to that, all that's only in Luke, hmm. right? So he kind of, he introduces this language of this age and next age. That language is not in Mark and Matthew. I'll just say not in Mark because there, none of his changes are ones that, that Matthew. So I'll just compare with Mark for now, which assumes a lot. Sorry, but so he's introduced the language of the sons of this age. Mm-hmm. And then later we get the language of sons of resurrection or sons of God, sons of resurrection, mm-hmm. um, which also only appears in Luke. So, so Luke's adding a lot of material here, almost in a way that sort of, I wonder if some of the problems that we're bumping into are more problematic when you read Mark and Matthew, because Luke maybe has already encountered problematic interpretations of this passage or of this story that has probably circulated orally for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then it goes on to say when they rise from the dead or when they attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That line is in all three gospels, Mm -hmm. the neither part. So Luke really kind of expands it, but then he adds the line that you highlighted for none are able to die. They're not capable of dying anymore, Mm -hmm. right? That appears only in Luke, which seems to me that he is maybe saying he's seen people, maybe there's been this problem of people saying, oh, they neither marry nor give in marriage. Maybe we're we're the children of the next age. Maybe we shouldn't get married. We knew this was a problem. Mm -hmm. First Corinthians 7 reveals that in the Pauline mm-hmm. churches, this was a matter of confusion yeah. of what happens to marriage if you're a eschatological community, right? Uh, and he's trying to say, ah, but the difference is it's because they don't die anymore. So marriage, as we understand it, is completely, has to be completely rethought because marriage for us is so bound up with the notion of mm-hmm. inheritance, progeny, till death do us part. Mm-hmm. And then there's another correction. I'm sorry, I'm going off forever on Go this, ahead. but. I'm going to throw all this data out there and then you tell me what you want to do with it, which could be nothing. That's fine. They, they have, Mark and Matthew have, they will be as angels in heaven or like angels. Mm-hmm. And he changes it to is angeloi, like, uh, equal to the angels, mm-hmm. which I think is a slightly more precise mm-hmm. right? Because as the angels makes you think, oh, well, maybe it's because angels don't marry and give marriage. Mm-hmm. Again, without the f- reference to not dying, might make you think, oh, angels don't marry. Oh, because maybe angels aren't boys or girls, which then falls into the trap of a kind of Gnostic notion of resurrection mm-hmm. as not really resurrection at all, but just an immortal soul that's not bodied anymore. I feel like he's highlighting the bodiliness of resurrection indirectly by yeah. introducing these changes and additions. And again, sons of resurrection and sons of God. So he's like, really not wanting to make this all about angels. Mm-hmm. That, those are some things that I noticed that seem to, I think they're confirming your basic reading is to say that Luke's yeah. making sure that it's clear that the main problem is death and yeah. that being like angels is, is about being equal to them in terms of mm-hmm. our deathlessness, right? Yeah. Not that we're somehow now angelic in our 
ontology or something like that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think of all that? Or was that all just a distraction of synoptic? No, I think it's a good point. I think the thing that (laughs) the thought that it raised for me is, is maybe an example of how the synoptics, you know, reading them together and noting the differences, specifically if Luke's writing later, you know, um, he's, I think your idea that potentially he's trying to kind of box out some misinterpretations, you know, by clarifying a couple of things is a good idea. Cause it seems like to me that those seem like reasonable assumptions, the emphasis on, and they will no longer die. And the emphasis on equal to the angels, you know, are kind of like attempts to sort of close the door on some potential misinterpretations, yeah. which maybe if you're talking about like an application, it might be, for preachers and whatnot, maybe highlights, you know, the need to pay attention to when we have a parallel passage to pay a little bit of attention to some of the differences. And, you know, oftentimes when I preach, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to pay attention to just my passage in Luke and I'm not, you know, cross-referencing too much with Mark or, you know, but it seems like there's, there might be a kind of like theological reason um, for him to kind of shut the door on some false interpretations or something like that. That's my only thought is that you could see why he might do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That comparative work doesn't always yield Mm -hmm. uh, crucial insights. I felt like in this one, it did. And when it does, I try to bring them up on the pod. (laughs) Although I have a tendency to bring it up no matter what, if I can, but I really enjoy those subtle little things. Um, I just feel like Mark and Matthew, really all you get is they don't marry because they're like angels. Well, now I don't think the additions Luke here is putting is they actually clarify what, of course, Jesus would have meant. I don't think it's Mm -hmm. a point of, uh, it's not really a contradiction. It's a clarification in this case. Um, Because he really sidelines the angel language by introducing all these other lingo, sons of the the age to come, uh, sons of resurrection, sons of God. So we have three different references to what it means to be the risen life and like uh, equal to angels is merely one of those is alongside and modifying those other three names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and come back and uh, you're already getting there with that application. So let's uh, do some sermon starters. Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Josh McNall, and we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. And uh, yeah, I guess it was through 38, but you really need that last little moment of everyone being blown away that no one can question him. So Luke 20, 27 through uh, 40. Let's uh, explore some sermon starters. How might you uh, go about this if you were preaching a text on this, preach a sermon on this text? Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned this a little bit previously, but, you know, Jesus is in a position in some ways that's similar to where a lot of us are in our culture is he's in polarized times and he's got these two groups, these two parties, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are trying to pull him into their debate, their, their talking points on resurrection and one of the things I'm always impressed with with Jesus is his ability to refuse to be boxed into the the position of these these polarized extremes. Mm. You know, the, the, mm. 
the stereotypical Sadducee position or the stereotypical Pharisee position. And even though he aligns with the Pharisees on believing in resurrection, he, he's also, you know, critical of them. So the first, maybe the first sermon starter takeaway um, that I had was Jesus's refusal to be sort of boxed in by the, the stereotypical gotcha questions of his day, you know, um, and, and so that's, it's maybe an application that has to do with how do you respond to these entrenched opposing positions mm. in, in a way that is thoughtful and biblical, but without just the stereotypical pick aside, you know, in, in the debate. And this seems like a text where Jesus does that, you know, masterfully. Because when we're preaching, you know, we're not quite having this same debate today in the church. You know, that's not the question that a pastor is fielding. Like, okay, here's a scenario. If a guy's married seven times and, you know, so that application has more to do with the way in which Jesus responds to um, this sort of gotcha question in a polarized uh, environment. Yeah, the kind of witness that Jesus is becomes a model for… The kind of witness. I mean, I mean, not to. I, I I'm notorious for trying to generate points, uh, partially because I mean, I'm not always a multi-point, three-point preacher. I sometimes am. Actually, I never am. I'm a one-point preacher that just says the point three different ways, uh, so that people, you know, some people want to feel like we're getting somewhere, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really just the same point hammered down. Um, but I know for our listeners, sometimes identifying some points helps because then they can put the flesh that they want to on it. So I'm trying to think real, just briefly, just for fun, brainstorm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I would like to just rattle off maybe with you. What would be some of the aspects of his way of mm-hmm. facing the, the way of Jesus witness? And I mean, first one, here's the phrase I want to say is, you know, Jesus doesn't take the bait, right? Mm-hmm. That would be like one is to, to learn how to spot it when there's a right. hook. Right. hiding in the fish and you just swim right around that bait, just yeah. swim right around it, man. Yeah. And I need to hear that so much. Cause I, I take the bait, man. I get in yeah. a fight so easy, you know, don't feed the trolls. Yeah. 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 Don't take the bait. Don't feed the trolls. Yeah. And, uh, that would be one. I think another is, is what you said is the, uh, I mean, it's related. I mean, maybe what you were saying was related to that, but there's this, uh, that second thing of, you pointed out how on this crucial issue, he does actually side with the Pharisees, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you can almost count. I almost want to like, I, pardon my kind of Hegelianism here, but it's kind of like, so you have the kind of Pharisees versus Sadducees mm-hmm. and, or, or being polarized like in our time. Mm-hmm. And then you have the kind of depolarizing person mm-hmm. who doesn't take the bait, right? Mm-hmm. But then that's a kind of little antithesis now, polarizing versus depolarizing people. And right. then Jesus is really even a third option behind that because on the matters where it really counts, he's willing to take a stand. He does yeah. believe in resurrection. So right. he's not going to both sides everything either. Mm-hmm. So right. I'm not pushing back on you. I'm, I'm sort oh, of adding layer yeah. is to say, this isn't about being evasive. Right. This is about having the right priorities on what does matter Right. And not taking the bait on the finer points. Maybe. That's a thought. Yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. Because the affirmation of resurrection a, here is very strong. <laughs> very strong. Yeah. He, you know, he, he's, and I tend to be, all of us are different, right? Some of us tend to be more either or types of personalities. 
and some of ah. us tend to be the sort of both ander personality. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be like, well, wait a minute, it's not either or, it's both and, except there are all sorts of situations <laughs> where it's not both and, you know, he's like, no, no, no. The resurrection matters. It, it's not like, you know, you can, you can hedge on that, but maybe a second point is when you look at what passage Jesus goes to for him. Yeah, this is where I was going to go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> well, you know, he quotes from the Torah mm-hmm. and, you know, for the Sadducees, that's the, that's the part of the Old Testament that they accept. You know, they say no to the prophets and the writings. Yeah. Resurrection proof texts are a lot easier to find in the, yeah. in the prophets. And so Jesus. It's hard, in, it's hard in the Torah. I mean, the Sadducees are onto something. In that yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> he, he meets them on their turf in that sense. Yes. He uses, he uses a kind of common ground and he meets them on their turf and he quotes from a passage that probably none of us would quote from if we were looking for a, a sort of resurrection proof text, but he is meeting them where they are in terms of the scriptures that they accept, which I suppose you could see as an apologetic move, um, but also kind of a, a quest for um, a kind of common ground, you know, with his opponents. Um, so he doesn't just throw out the classic, proof text from say Ezekiel or something from Daniel. Yeah. 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 He, he meets them where they are biblically in, in, in referencing the Torah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. It kind of, so, I mean, again, we don't have to have a list, but I like lists. Uh, So I'm, I'm hearing like not taking the bait, not getting caught in a false either or. Yeah. Uh, But also second point, not getting calls in a, in a in a cheap both and right standing his ground so he yeah. doesn't take the bait but he or should I say this would maybe be a better final point anyway but is the the keeps the main thing the main thing right has the priority to know that resurrection is a doctrine worth standing on yeah, yeah. Uh, but the finer points of of levirate marriage are why take the bait on that mm-hmm. and this third one that you're pointing out which is this recognizing the authorities that others recognize, you know, appealing to authorities that will make sense to those we are speaking to. Mm -hmm. Um, But even there, he does this very clever move that I think is very relevant for us internal in this, especially in the churches when we do have debates and we do that uh, he's interpreting, he's, they are speaking from the legal material from the Torah and he's reaching for a narrative. Mm -hmm. And this is a common move that Jesus will make where he will he, he lets the narratives interpret the legal material yeah. rather than the legal material trump the narratives. And yeah. I think there's a, a pretty key insight there. So it's still the Torah, but he's saying, here's this event where God is speaking and yeah. naming himself. And notice how he names himself with yeah. reference to people who at the time were dead. So yeah. is God the God of dead people? No, surely if God ties his identity to these men, yeah. Is he not implicitly promising to raise them from the dead? Again, it's not, it's not, it's not the soundest argument as a pure textual argument, right. but as a, as a canonical reading of the kind of character of God, it's yeah. a strong argument, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a very strong argument. I don't know that. I don't know if that resonates. Well, that's a great, I had not, I had never thought about using the narrative to interpret the, 
the legal, but it strikes me that in our own age, you know, um, maybe even more so like, you know, story is, is powerful in preaching and the use of narrative and, um, you know, there's the whole narratival turn in theology. There's the whole, you know, and I think sometimes myself included, I've overdone the whole story, 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 story. Right, right, you know? right. But he reaches for a story and, and the power of that, um, I think, like you said, it, it trumps this sort of just appeal to this or that command or this or that rule or this or that legal precept, you know, um, and there's something there that's probably of homiletical value too. Um, Mm -hmm. As we think about how as preachers, we attempt to get our own points across and reaching for the story, either from our own life or from the scriptures or from, you know, to, um, to drive it home. Yeah. And I mean, just following up on that, it's a great example of, I mean, in their reductio ad absurdum, and this is an observation that's new for me. I didn't mention it when we were doing observing, but I'll bring it up now. In verse, uh, let's see, verse 28, the quote that comes from the Torah is um, so that, you know, that a, his brother uh, take the wife and ex anastase, raise out of mm. sperma uh, to Adelphoi out to raise up a seed mm-hmm. of his, for his brother or to his brother for mm-hmm. the sake of his brother. It's a dative. Mm-hmm. So I bring that up to say, again, I didn't notice it because it, it's the word raise up in yeah. English, but we yeah. don't hear the resurrection lingo there. Right. So it was more obvious to me in, in the Greek, it's actually the word anastasis. Yeah. Uh, so all of a sudden it hits to me like, from a pure kind of proof text, the Sadducees picked a great text. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're saying, hey, the word resurrection practically never appears in the Torah. And yeah. when it does, yeah. it's not about the end times. It's about everyday right. you know, yeah. life. And, and this is another, this is, goes back to the not taking the bait thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus could take the bait and try to, interpret that text that they're putting forward. And Jesus is really, even though he reaches for another text, it's clearly not a proof text. It doesn't have the word resurrection as a standalone text. It's actually a pretty lame proof text. Mm -hmm. In fact, by reaching for the story, he's taking the whole story of God Mm -hmm. that's centered in the Torah as what's what matters in interpretation rather than uh, getting stuck on the detail in front yeah. of him. Not the details don't matter, but it's, it's the, yeah. it's the bait thing. He doesn't take the bait of reducing his teaching to where a particular word appears in the scripture, which is a right. very common thing for kind of modern Bible loving. Yeah. Christian, right. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't try to do theology by word study to, <laughs> that's, to, right. <laughs> to, that's a common, that's a critique of certain modern theologians that they think yeah. that they can do theology by word study and he doesn't fall into that you know that trap yeah yeah now maybe my my worry is is this little sermon starter that we're playing with here might be super relevant to like uh pastors themselves and the way they go about their study and christians who might be susceptible to debate and uh contentiousness um 
there probably are contexts where this this kind of sermon is not going to really land. And those might, in fact, be ones who have never even heard just the good news of resurrection. So I don't know. A sermon that just zooms right in on 37 uh, would be fine by me, right? 37 and 38. He's the God of the living, not the dead, for all who live towards him. That's a whole – I've got that up on my wall here. He's he's God, not of the dead, but of the living. It's just to to – that good well, news to keep the main thing, the main thing would be yeah. a whole other sermon that we don't have time to write right now, but that would be a fine, just yeah. to really focus on the good news of resurrection. Well, cause it highlights too. Uh, first of all, it's for the Sadducees to disagree with them. They have to downgrade their God. <laughs> they have to say, Oh, he's the God of the dead, which is a, which is a, you know, a really kind of not such a great thing to say about your God. But that also, like for those, all of us, you know, who've had loved ones, friends, you know, family members pass away, it's a strong statement about, you know, for to him, all are alive, you know. Yeah. That this is a God who is the God of the living, and this is a God to whom, you know, the deceased are very much alive, the dead for us or the alive to him. Yes. And wow. so, it's, so it's not just a passage that depolarizes debates. It's a passage that gives hope to the grieving and, you know, magnifies the greatness of God, um, you know, in Christ, which I think, like you said, we, it would be a shame to take this beautiful passage about resurrection and just make it about, you know, Jesus refuses to take the bait, you know? Yeah. 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 And of course, if you just followed the flow of the text, you would naturally end there. Right. So you, you, you could talk about the debate stuff, but then really take a turn to the deeper because really it turns out that according to verse 38, the resurrection doctrines, not primarily about us. It's about Mm -hmm. God, the kind of God that we serve. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And last, maybe one last homiletical thing is I, I tend to like to preach inductively and um, this in narrative passages, at least for me work more easily that way sometimes. And it seems like this one, like you said, just following the the order of the text lays out beautifully for an inductive message that ends right where the text ends with the hope of resurrection, the glory of God as the God who is the God of the living, you know, like that's a that's a place to end a sermon, and you know the passage just kind of lays out like that. Yeah, it has a kind of natural three movements, right? There's the right. Sadducees' question, really giving that giving that the respect it deserves to really understand it. Yeah, and then Jesus's initial response that runs from 34 through uh, 36, and then the turn in 37 to 39 to yeah. really when he turns over to, over to Exodus three in the burning bush story. So there's a kind of natural turn there that you could really move in three natural movements, man. I want to hear the, I want to hear or write this sermon. It's exciting. (laughs) Well, I know you got to go. So thank you so much for, uh, for uh, being with us uh, this week, Josh. I appreciate it a ton. Thanks for having me, John. It was fun. Well, in addition to the thanking Josh, I want to thank all our listeners. Uh, We appreciate you so much. Be sure to share and subscribe as well as rate and review us to get the word out on what we're doing here. Big thanks as always to Todd Bouchong and Eric Fisher for their excellent production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. And thanks to Todd Adamson for donating theme music. And as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.